text for this morning's sermon is found in the book of 1 Peter, chapter 3. That's on page 1059, for those of you that are using the Bible from the pew rack in front of you. 1 Peter 3, reading verses 1 through 6. Likewise, you wives, be submissive to your husbands, so that some, though they do not obey the word, may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives, when they see your reverent and chaste behavior. Let not yours be the outward adorning with braiding of hair, decoration of gold, and wearing of fine clothing, but let it be the hidden person of the heart, with the imperishable jewel of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. So once the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves and were submissive to their husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are now her children, if you do right, and let nothing terrify you. I would like to sum up last week's message and make a connection to this week's message by telling you a story from The Pilgrim's Progress, a book which I hope every one of you will read, if you haven't already, by John Bunyan, 300 years old, an allegory about the life of a Christian. And there's a man named Christian on the King's Highway. He has escaped from the city of destruction. He's on his way to the celestial city, and he encounters many difficulties. For example, he was walking with his beloved companion, Hopeful, and lo and behold, they left the king's highway and went into bypath meadows, and there they encountered giant despair. And he took them captive and took him home, took them home to his castle called Doubting Castle and threw them in a dungeon, dark and stinking. And the next day he came and he pommeled them and beat them till they were almost dead. And he left them crying in the dungeon. And the next day he came and said, the only way you're going to get out of Doubting Castle is to take your life. I will supply knife, poison, or halter. And went back to his wife. He came back the next day. They were alive. For Hopeful had argued with Christian for another day. And he went back and raged to his wife. And she said, maybe they are not killing themselves because they hope someone will deliver them. Maybe they have a picklock on them. And he said, I'll search them in the morning. That night, it was Saturday, and they began to pray at midnight. And I'll read now Bunyan's great words. Now, a little before it was day, good Christian, as one half amazed, break out in this passionate speech, what a fool, quoth he, am I, thus to lie in a stinking dungeon when I may as well walk at liberty. I have a key in my bosom called promise. That will, I am persuaded, open any lock in Doubting Castle. Then said Hopeful, that's good news. Good brother, pluck it out of thy bosom and try. And then Christian pulled it out. And he began to try at the dungeon door, whose bolt, as he turned the key, gave back. 
And the door flew open with ease and Christian and Hopeful both came out. And then he went to the outward door that leads to the castle yard and with his key opened that door also. And after he went to the iron gate for that must be opened too. But the lock went damnable hard, yet the key did open it. And then they thrust open the gate to make their escape with speed. But the gate, as it opened, made such a creaking that it waked giant despair, who hastily rising to pursue his prisoners, felt his limbs to fail. For his fits took him again, so that he could by no means go after them. And then they went on and came to the king's highway again. And so they were safe because they were out of his jurisdiction. There is no other escape from doubting castle and giant despair than this. The endurance of hope and the key called promise. And that was last week's message. If you weren't here, you've heard it. The connection now to today's message. Christian makes it to the celestial city and enters into his reward. His wife was not converted when he was. But later, evangelist preaches again in the city of destruction and she is in so much distress over her husband going on ahead of her that she and her four sons are converted and set out on the king's highway. And she fights valiantly. And I wish I could tell you the stories about how the castle of Doubting Castle was destroyed by her four sons, but we'll pass over that and hasten to the end. She's at the final river, awaiting her summons from the other side. And she gets it in a letter. Hail, good woman. I bring thee tidings that the master calleth for thee and expecteth that thou shouldst stand in his presence in clothes of immortality within this ten days. And with her heart full of hope, she gathers her children, Matthew, Samuel, James, and Joseph, four sons, and tells them goodbye. She takes her few goods and gives them to the poor. And then she calls Mr. Valiant for truth and commits to him the care of her boys. And then with great tenderness and strength, she summons for Mr. Despondency and his daughter, much afraid. And she says her last words of admonition to them. You ought with thankfulness forever to remember your deliverance from the hands of giant despair. The effect of that mercy is that you are brought with safety hither. Be ye watchful and cast away fear. Be sober and hope to the end. And there's the connection with today's topic and text. The topic is holy women who hope in God. And the text is 1 Peter chapter 3. Verses 1 to 6. Let's go to it. We'll skip over contextual matters, go right to the heart of things, and ask, what is the root of a great woman? What is the root cause of greatness in holy women? The answer is in verse 5. Let's read it together. 
So once the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves and were submissive to their husbands. Now, there are three things in this verse that we'll look at briefly. Number one, holy women hope in God. Number two, out of that grand and fearless hope in God, there flows a garment of tranquility and peace and quietness and meekness. And out of that spirit of tranquility, there comes an inclination and disposition to exalt her husband as the head of the family and be submissive to him. Let's take those one at a time and look at them. First, it says that the holy women hoped in God. That is, they learned to do what we were talking of a few weeks ago. They preached themselves a sermon from the Psalms like, Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why are you disquieted within me this morning, surrounded by the clamor of these kids? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my help and my God. They're like Sarah. You remember what it says of Sarah in Hebrews 11? Hebrews 11 begins with a definition of faith. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. And all you see through chapter 11 is heroes and heroines who hope in God. For example, by faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. In other words, we learn from Sarah that women who are holy look away. From the frustrations, the miseries, the tragedies, the obstacles of joy in this life to God. And they reckon him faithful and sovereign and powerful and loving and kind and unfailing in his promises. And they strengthen their soul with hope and pick up and go on dirty diapers and all. Loss of husband, divorce. They go on because they hope in God. Not only that, but they are freed from something that tends to make life miserable. Look at verse 6 at the end. And you women are now her children, Sarah's children, if you do right and let nothing terrify you. You want to be a Daughter of Sarah, hope in God and allow that hope to drive fear out. Holy women aren't afraid of things, except one thing, displeasing God. Or let's not overstate the case. Let's be accurate and realistic. Let's say it this way. Holy women who hope in God, when fears and anxieties rise, make war on those fears with a weapon of the word until they drive it out 
and have hope filling them and thus gain strength to get on with life. That's number one in this text. Holy women hope in God and allow no terror to immobilize them in their duties. Second, this hope in God results in a kind of clothing within. It says, so holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves. And the adornment is referring back to verses 3 and 4. Let's read it. Here's the description of the garment within. Let not yours be the outward adorning with braiding of hair, decoration of gold, and wearing of robes, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable jewel of a gentle and quiet, or we could say a meek and tranquil spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Now, why did Peter bring up the issue of clothes and hairstyles and jewelry? It doesn't seem to fit the context. Let me try to uh, show you why I think he brought it up. I think verses 1 and 2 give us the clue that explain why he brings it up. He has in mind not only... Christian wives of Christian husbands, but Christian wives of non-Christian husbands. And he says to them, Likewise, you wives, be submissive to your husbands, so that some, though they do not obey the word, may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives when they see your reverent and chaste behavior. Now, it's Peter's desire that Christian wives live in such a way that unbelieving husbands will be persuaded that God is real. Isn't that an awesome challenge? To so live that the conscience of of an unbelieving husband will be stricken with guilt. The reality of God, God will shine and he will embrace her God. Awesome call for this woman to influence her husband. But he warns them, don't preach at him. You see that? He says, without a word. That's a warning to the wives. Watch out, lest you drive him away by nagging him about religion. Okay? I think verses 3 and 4 are another warning for how not to try to win an unbelieving husband. Namely... Don't try to do it with trendy hairstyles, a better tan, delicate jewelry, clinging robes. You might attract him to the bedroom, and there's nothing wrong with that, but you won't attract him to God. And if your goal is to attract him or anybody to God, it's got to be from within. The world can tell you how to attract men to yourself. Only the scriptures can tell you how to attract men to God. And let me insert here for the single women that your hope ought to be in God, not in getting a husband, because the only husband worth getting 
is one who wants to play second fiddle in your life. Now we've seen two steps. The first step is hope in God. And the second step is out of that fearless hope, clothe yourselves within with the garment of tranquility and meekness and quietness. You can see how the two fit together, don't you? If you have a strong hope in a sovereign God, there comes a peace over the turbulent sea of your heart. Well, there are countless examples we could go to. One is um, Esther Burr. She was the second daughter of Jonathan Edwards. He had eight daughters, three sons. She married Aaron Burr who became the president of Princeton College. And she learned her father's theology well. She endured great suffering in her life. For example, her first child, Sarah, was born with what she called a crooked neck. What's her response? She says, Perhaps God foresaw that we should be too proud of her and so has sent this calamity to mortify us and her. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 14. Holy women who hope in God look to the promises of the word to establish them to have this kind of Confidence in God's sovereignty. There you can see what it says, that if you suffer for righteousness, you will be blessed. Don't have any fear of them, but reverence Christ in your heart. So a holy woman reads that and she says, though suffering come, blessing comes through it. And I will hope in God. And then go to chapter 4, verse 19. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will do right and entrust their souls to a faithful creator. Holy women have to be theologians, lay theologians. That is, they have to know the character of God. They can't have a superficial, silly view of God that says when a baby is born with a crooked neck, God didn't have anything to do with that. The text says, if you suffer according to the will of God, holy women who hope in God and establish their souls in times of trouble know that God reigns. That nothing lies outside his sovereign decrees. And then they go on and read the next half of the verse. and Hand their souls over to a creator. And rest in him. And gain great strength. When Esther Burr's husband Aaron died three years later. After the little girl was born. She wrote. God has seemed sensibly near in such a supporting and comfortable manner that I think I have never experienced the like. She's writing to her mother and father, Jonathan and Sarah Edwards. 
request earnestly of the Lord that I may never faint under this severe stroke. Oh, I am afraid I shall conduct myself so as to bring dishonor on the religion I profess. You may fear one thing, women. You may fear bringing disrepute upon God by fearing anything else. We conclude with one last point in verse 5 of chapter 3. The first point was holy women hope in God. The second point was that hope leads to an inner garment of tranquility and peace and meekness and quietness. And the third point is that that hope and that tranquility yields a spirit that honors the husband as the head of the wife and submits to him. Verse 1 says, Likewise, you wives, be submissive to your husbands. And verse 5 says, So once the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves and were submissive to their husbands. Now, there is very, very much to say about this, more than we have time to say. I'm going to continue talking about this issue tonight. I announced in the bulletin the topic, um, what Proverbs teaches us or says to women. We will get to Proverbs. The reason I want to continue it tonight is because I'm going to close by just telling you a story about how I grew up in my home. And I'm aware that this doesn't prove anything, but it illustrates something for those of you who see it proved in Scripture. I see it proved in Scripture. I'll try to justify it tonight. I want to illustrate it for those of you who are just wondering what it looks like, this idea of headship and submission. I grew up in a home where my father was away from home about two-thirds of every year. He was an evangelist. He still is an evangelist. And he held about 25 evangelistic crusades every year, varying in length between one week and three weeks. He would go away on a Saturday morning on the plane and we would wave goodbye. And one week or two weeks or three weeks later, he would come and we would go to the airport. I've been to the Greenville Spartanburg Airport hundreds of times. And I remember as a little boy the most precious memories of seeing my daddy appear at the door of those little two-prop planes and smile, always smile, and ran down the ramp and cross the runway and pick me up and up. Well, that meant that my sister and I were basically reared by my mother. And she taught me almost everything practical that I know. She taught me how to cut the grass, you know, overlap so you don't get skippers and keep a checkbook and and ride a bike and drive a car and make notes so you can give a little speech in Sunday school and set the table and uh, make pancakes so they don't stick to the skillet. She paid the bills. She handled all the repairs in the house. She cleaned the house. She cooked meals. She helped me with my homework. She took us to church. She led us in devotions. She was the intermediate department superintendent, and she was the head of the community garden club. My mother was a tireless 
doer of good for other people. She was incredibly strong in her loneliness. The early 60s, you may remember, were the days of civil rights, ugly days in the South. I grew up in Greenville, South Carolina, and I remember an experience. Wednesday night, the church was going to take a vote on a resolution to exclude black people from worship. And I was in a youth meeting, and my father was in California. And my mother, alone in that business meeting, when they said, all opposed, please stand, stood by herself. Came home, I remember her crying. 1963, my sister was married in that church. And a black family came that we knew well. And one usher started to take them up the to the balcony where nobody was sitting. I say these were ugly days. My mother stalked out of that sanctuary, took them from him and marched them right in and sat them down. I never have known anybody quite like Ruth Piper. Omnicompetent as far as I could tell. Overflowing with love, and boundless energy. I'm not sure I can remember ever seeing her go to bed. Because I always went first. And I don't think I ever saw her get up in the morning. But here's my point. When my father came home, my mother had the extraordinary ability and biblical wisdom and humility to make him the head of the home. She was in the best sense submissive to him. And it was an amazing thing to watch. He went and he came. He went and he came. He went and she ruled that family with an iron hand. Flawlessly competent in every dimension of the household affairs and the business of a family as far as I could tell. And he came home and she gave the rule to him. Now it was he who prayed at the table. Now it was he who led the devotions. Now it was he that drove us to worship and watched over us in the pews. Now it was he who answered our puzzling and religious questions. And my fear of disobedience shifted from my mother's wrath to my father's wrath. When he came home, for there too he took the lead. Oh, how my parents could get angry. And I am glad. I would never know what the wrath of God means had I never seen certain facial expressions on my father. <laughs> when I spoke disrespectfully to my mother, that was a terrifying experience for which I'm grateful. But I never heard my father put my mother down or say one demeaning word to her. They sang together. They laughed together. They put their heads together to bring each other up to date on the business of the family. And it was an unspeakable gift of grace to have grown up in such a home. Now, here's what I learned. and I believe brothers and sisters, and simply commend it to you for your consideration and study 
that what I learned in that home was a biblical truth before I could read it in the Bible. And it's this, number one, there is no correlation between incompetence and submissiveness. Second, there is such a thing as a masculine leadership that does not demean a wife. And third, there is such a thing as a free and willing and noble feminine submissiveness, which is not weak or mindless or manipulative. That's biblical truth. As I'll try to show you further tonight, I never thought of the, the possibility that I began to hear at the end of the 60s when the feminist rhetoric broke out on us that the design of my home might be owing to somebody's inferiority. It never entered my mind that that should explain what was going on there. Because it wasn't an explanation for what was going on there. What was going on there was two people who hoped in God and believed the word of God when it said that this kind of family will produce the best kind of children, make for the happiest home, and result in the greatest witness for the gospel, no matter what the culture says. And that's my plea for you this morning. Consider these things with all earnestness and seriousness. And don't let our culture squeeze you into its mold. Let's stand for prayer. Gracious and merciful Father in heaven, I am so thankful to you for my mother and my father. And now I pray, Lord, for all of us in this room, man, woman, and child, that there will grow in each of us a strong hope in God as we attend to his glorious promises and the finished work of Christ on Calvary for our sins. And I pray that out of that hope there will flow a garment of tranquility and meekness. And I pray that out of that tranquility and meekness, the women will receive an inclination to honor their husbands as their head and submit to him. And that the men will receive an inclination to assume a humble and godly and respectful leadership in their homes. That the world might see Christ and his bride married in husbands and their wives. In Jesus' great and holy name we pray. And all the people said, Amen.